0: December 7, 1939, was the last day of Barbara Newhall Follett's life. At least it was as far as we
1: know. That morning, the 25-year-old author and former child prodigy was pacing back and forth in her Brookline, Massachusetts apartment. She was enraged. Her husband, Nickerson Rogers, had just stormed out of the room after yet another fight. Barbara tried to set her mind at ease. She thought of the poetry and
0: the travel and the adventures with Nickerson that had made her first fall in love with him. Nothing worked. She was miserable. She couldn't remember the last
1: time she was happy. She looked around her cheap apartment, the testament to her droll life and wasted ambitions. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Barbara grabbed her journal and $30 from the counter. Then,
0: she walked toward the door and out into the brisk Massachusetts air. She kept walking forward, away from her home, away from him. It didn't matter where she was going. Anywhere was better than here.
1: She was never seen again.
0: Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original.
1: Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love— let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
0: And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com
1: merch for more information. You can find all previous episodes of Gone as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts.
0: Today, we are exploring the extraordinary life and tragic disappearance of child prodigy and acclaimed author, Barbara Newhall Follett.
1: In December 1939, Barbara was living with her husband, Nickerson Rogers, at 48 Kent Street in Brookline, Massachusetts. On the morning of December 7th, following a fight with Rogers... 25-year-old Barbara walked out of their apartment and seemed to vanish off the face of the earth.
0: The case remains cold to this day. No body had been found, and the details of this disappearance
1: remain elusive. In this episode, we're going to discuss Barbara's life from her promising early childhood to her adolescent trauma caused by her parents' divorce to her troubled marriage. Then we'll discuss the few
0: known facts of her disappearance and explore possible theories as to what
1: really happened to her. Our first theory is that Barbara was murdered by her husband, Nickerson Rogers. Our second theory is that Barbara committed suicide
0: in such a way that her body would never be found. Our third and final theory is that Barbara formed a new alias and lived out the rest of her life.
1: Barbara Newhall Follett was born on March 4, 1914, in Hanover, New Hampshire, to Wilson and Helen Follett. Both of her parents were academics. They made their living as teachers, essayists, editors, and literary critics. Their adoration of words was passed directly to Barbara. Barbara was homeschooled from a very
0: young age, much to her delight. Rather than conform her active imagination to a rigid curriculum... Barbara was allowed to follow her passions, including literature, music, and nature. She adored birds and butterflies, and spent
1: many hours in the woods around her home exploring. The freedom her parents allowed her fostered Barbara's imagination, and she took to expressing herself creatively at a very young age. She could read by the age of three, and by age four she was writing poetry on her father's typewriter. By five, she was drafting entire short stories. In 1920, when Barbara was turning
0: six, she wrote a 4,500-word fantasy adventure story called The Life of the Spinning Wheel, the Rocking Horse, and the Rabbit.
1: The sophistication in the writing of this story designated Barbara as a child prodigy. She was writing at a professional level at only six years old.
0: Consider her opening lines for the story. Once upon a time, though I can't say exactly when, there lived in a far-off country a spinning wheel, a rocking horse, and a rabbit. They knew many of the people in that country. They lived in a house with many pretty things in it, such as I'm going to tell you about. Amethysts, turquoises, opals, pearls, diamonds, and rubies, and precious stones of all kinds. That's pretty impressive for a six-year-old. By the age of eight, Barbara was writing letters to family and friends around the country. Her words illustrate her pure whimsy and imagination at this stage of her life. She wrote the following to an antiques dealer in Providence, Rhode Island, by the name of Mr. Oberg.
1: Quote, I pretend that Beethoven, the two Strausses, Wagner, and the rest of the composers are still living, and they go skating with me, and when I invite them to dinner, a place has to be set for them, and when I have so many that the table won't hold them all, I make my family sit on one side of their chair to make room for them.
0: Barbara took to having imaginary playdates with classical composers. She began to invent a fantasy world for herself and her imaginary friends called... Farxolia. This world was complete with its own
1: language called Farksu. Throughout these early years Barbara's family loved her, but she did struggle to make friends. She saw her writing as very important and didn't understand why other kids just wanted to play and waste time. This is a common attribute of child prodigies. The eccentricities that drive them to create also leave them with a general inability to connect with peers. This might have been one of the reasons why her parents chose to keep her in
0: homeschool, but we'll never know for sure. What we do know is her parents loved their gifted daughter.
1: In early 1923, when Barbara was just eight years old, she began work on her first full novel.
0: Throughout the early months of that year, Barbara reportedly wrote a staggering four to 5,000 words per day. She wanted to finish the book before her ninth birthday in March. Since she started writing, Barbara had made a habit of writing stories as gifts for other people on her birthday, and the
1: book was intended to be a gift for her parents. According to Barbara, the book, originally titled The Adventures of Epersip, was about, quote, a little girl named Epersip who lived on top of a mountain, Mount Varcrobus and was so lonely that she went away to live wild. She talked to the animals and led a sweet, lovely life with them, just the kind of life that I should like to lead. Her parents tried to catch her with some friends of theirs, and every time she escaped in some way or another. Barbara barely
0: missed her self-imposed deadline and finished her book just a few days after her ninth birthday in March of 1923. Unfortunately, the
1: original copy didn't stand the test of time. The Follett's home caught fire in October of 1923. The entire house burned to the ground, and Barbara's manuscripts all reduced to ash.
0: As you can imagine, Barbara was devastated. For a few months, she returned to her short stories and poems, but she just couldn't leave Ypresip alone. She had poured so much work and heart into the novel that she felt like her life was incomplete without a copy of the story in existence.
1: So, in early 1924, the precocious child began to write her book all over again. Over the next few years, she doubled the length of the original story, finally completing a 40,000-word revised edition in early 1927, just before she turned 13. Her parents
0: loved the story. So much, in fact, that her father, Wilson, used his position as an editor at Knopf Publishing Group to get the book published in
1: 1927. The book, which was retitled A House Without Windows and Ibership's Life There, was critically praised when it was released. The book's impressive debut made quite an impression on the literary community once word got out that the author was all of 13 years old. Barbara was acclaimed by critic and author H.L. Mankin, The Saturday Review, and even The New York Times.
0: The nature of the Epersip story would have allowed for sequels, and one might assume that Barbara, fueled by the positive reception of her first novel, would want to continue writing in that world. But Barbara was one to follow her own whimsical instinct rather than do what might have made sense. By the time she was 13, she had another story in mind. But to
1: write it, she needed her parents' permission to go to Canada, alone. Barbara envisioned a nonfiction account of life aboard a lumber ship. She wanted to write about that world from a child's perspective. She pleaded with her parents for months before they finally agreed to let her go albeit with a family friend to act as a chaperone. It's
0: curious why neither of her parents opted to join her. But as this story will reveal, Wilson and Helen Follett
1: may not have been the most mindful parents in history. So in 1927, Barbara tagged along on board a lumber ship's 10-day voyage from New Haven to Nova Scotia. The crew of the ship would
0: later remark at how odd Barbara was on this trip. Not only was she their youngest crew member by far, she was absolutely ecstatic to work. She enjoyed mopping the floors and cleaning like a proper sailor.
1: This adventure became the basis for Barbara's next novel, The Voyage of the Norman D, as told by the Cabin Boy. It was a mostly autobiographical account of her time aboard the ship.
0: The book was published in 1928, just after Barbara's 14th birthday. Like her previous work, the book received critical
1: acclaim and commercial success. Barbara had now published two successful novels by the age of 14. To the literary community, she was a rising wunderkind who may well publish her first bona fide classic before she reached the age of 20. But then, at around the same time the book was released, Barbara went through one of the most traumatizing experiences of her life.
0: Next, we'll explore this pivotal moment in Barbara's childhood, which scarred her for life and may have ultimately set her on the path toward her mysterious fate.
1: Now, back to the story.
0: In March 1928, 14-year-old Barbara Newhall Follett had what she thought was a beautiful life. She was living at home, dreaming and writing to her heart's content. She had all the makings of America's next literary star, but then, the same month that the voyage of the Normandie, as told by the cabin boy, was released, her father, Wilson, destroyed the family with a single proclamation.
1: Wilson was in love with a secretary from Knopf Publishing, who he had met in New York while pitching Barbara's book. He wanted to divorce Helen and leave her and Barbara behind. He explained all this in a letter. Apparently, he didn't have it in him to actually confront his wife and daughter face to face.
0: Barbara had lived a very sheltered life up to this point. Her 10-day excursion on a lumber vessel notwithstanding, the homeschooled Barbara had spent most of her life at that point interacting with imaginary friends and her parents, both of whom she adored. And now,
1: just like that, her father had destroyed the family. Barbara's life changed overnight. Wilson was presumably the breadwinner of the household. Without him there, Helen would need to get a job or else rely on Barbara to keep publishing books to keep them afloat.
0: Barbara was one to follow her muse rather than do what was necessarily practical. It seemed that she inherited that
1: trait from her mother. Just after Wilson abandoned them, Helen packed a suitcase and took Barbara on a trip around the world.
0: They left New Hampshire in September of 1928. Armed with a single suitcase and two personal typewriters, the mother and daughter traveled to New York
1: and, from there, set sail to Barbados. From what we can tell, the goal of the trip was inspiration. Barbara wanted to start a new novel, and Helen, a writer herself, had her own project.
0: They stayed on the move for nine months— traveling from Barbados to Panama, to Tahiti, to Fiji, to the Tonga Islands, and finally Honolulu, where they arrived in May of 1929.
1: It's a little unclear exactly how these two women survived financially in their wanderlust. Neither of them had jobs, and the money from Barbara's book sales could only take them so far. Most historians believe they made friends with the locals along the way, who were able to support and feed them.
0: Others hypothesized they sold magazines to pay for their expenses. Either way, money was very tight for these two women as they made their way around the world.
1: This lack of financial stability was very jarring for Barbara and began to divide the mother and daughter as they regularly argued throughout the trip. From Hawaii,
0: they made their way to Hoquiam, Washington aboard a massive cargo schooner called Vigilant. It's not exactly clear why they chose Washington as their next destination, but the trip ended up having a massive impact on
1: the 15-year-old Barbara. It was on this fateful journey that Barbara became enamored with one of the sailors, a scruffy 25-year-old by the name of Anderson. The two became fond of each other.
0: As you can imagine, this didn't sit well at all with Helen but her attempts to keep her daughter away from the man who was ten years older only widened the rift between them.
1: They fought more and more. After arriving in Washington, Helen and Barbara traveled down the west coast to Pasadena. By that point, after nearly a year of traveling, the mother and daughter seemed to be tired of one another.
0: Shortly after they arrived in Pasadena, Helen took Barbara to the home of her friends, Mrs. J.L. Brown and Miss Mildred Kennedy. Brown and Kennedy gave Helen money to return to Honolulu and finish her novel. Barbara stayed behind in the care of the two strangers.
1: With both her parents gone, Barbara had to enroll in Pasadena Junior College to finish her education. Because of her homeschooling, this was the first time Barbara ever attended a public school. According to Barbara, she hated the institution of formal education with every fiber of her being. She called the school poisonous and struggled to make friends. By September of 1929,
0: Barbara had enough and decided to run away. She decided she'd make her way to San Francisco, adopt a new name, get a job as a typist,
1: and work on her next novel unfortunately, this master plan didn't come true. Barbara did make it to San Francisco, but she was reported as a runaway on September 19, 1929. According to local authorities, she tried to escape capture by jumping out of the rooming house window, but she was caught and detained. Many
0: theorists believe this moment displays how Barbara responded to adversity. Barbara had lived a fairly privileged, secluded life prior to her parents' divorce. As a child, she could always escape into a fantasy realm of her own imagining. As an adult, that tendency manifested in a kind of avoidance. Barbara didn't face her problems head on. Instead, she ran. In fact, many believe this was a key ingredient to her disappearance
1: years later. Helen was called back to California after word reached her of Barbara's attempt to run away. The mother and daughter were reunited and traveled back to the East Coast, eventually settling in New York City.
0: Barbara had made it clear by then that she wouldn't be returning to school. So Helen made it clear that if that was the case, Barbara would be getting a job. So she secured work as a typist in New York when she was 16.
1: The job wasn't much better than school had been. To Barbara, a nine-to-five lifestyle was just as insufferable as the institution of school. It was during this period in her life that she wrote in her journal, quote, my dreams are going through their death flurries. They're dying before the steel javelins and arrows of a world of time and money.
0: Barbara longed for the carefree days of her youth when her parents provided for her every want and she was free to devote her attention to creativity and imagination. She detested the trappings of the real world and the fact that she needed to take on soulless work in order to make money
1: to survive. This is a common frustration among child prodigies as they grow older. Although they're successful at a young age, the reality of adult life can often be very crippling. This was certainly the case for Barbara. But it
0: wasn't all doom and gloom. In 1931, when she was 17, Barbara absconded from work and traveled to Vermont with her mother. She reconnected with nature, one of her early loves, and even began writing again.
1: Barbara started drafting what was to be her third novel, Lost Island. It was a romantic story about a young woman named Jane Carey, who escapes New York City to find love, a deserted island, and the joy of nature.
0: Much like Barbara's other stories, this book served as a direct reflection of her life at the time. Trapped in a secretary job in New York City, she wanted nothing more than to wander the world once again.
1: More than that, she wanted to connect and maybe even find love. We don't
0: know the exact circumstances of how Barbara met Nickerson Rogers during that summer in Vermont. Rogers was a recent graduate of Dartmouth College, who, like Barbara, was spending the summer in Vermont trying to enjoy nature. Their connection was immediate and passionate.
1: Shortly after they met, the 17-year-old Barbara accompanied the 22-year-old Nickerson on a trip to Maine to hike the Atlantic countryside.
0: By the end of the summer, Barbara detested the idea of having to go back to New York City with her mother. She wanted to
1: stay with Nickerson. She ultimately did return to work, but by the next summer in 1932, 18-year-old Barbara quit her job and left her mother behind to go back to Vermont. She reconnected with Nickerson, and the two spent the next few months traveling and camping through the New England wilderness.
0: In late 1932, the young couple decided to travel across Europe. Including her childhood trip with her mother, this would be the second time in her life that Barbara set out for Europe with no real plan or money, but she was so head over heels in love with Nickerson that she didn't consider any other course of action. Once again, Barbara followed her need for freedom at the expense of any kind of financial security.
1: Barbara and Nick wandered through Europe, exploring the countryside and asking for favors from locals. They pretended to be husband and wife, and wandered with a little more ambition than to simply see the world.
0: Financially speaking, this is another mystery. We don't know exactly how the couple paid for their time in Europe, or even how they paid for the trip over there. What we do know was money was once again very tight, and after a year abroad... They had to return to the U.S. because they were broke.
1: They moved back to Boston, near Nick's family. Back in the United States, the couple officially got married in late 1933 and settled down for a more normal life.
0: No doubt, this kind of quiet existence would prove to be another challenge for Barbara. She got a job as a secretary, and Nick went to work as an engineer.
1: On the weekends, they continued to travel to the mountains and ski together, but their lives became remarkably ordinary.
0: For the next few years, Barbara continued to write and even finished her third book, Lost Island. But trips with her husband to the mountains became less and less frequent. Soon, Barbara was frustrated with her career, her life,
1: and her marriage. After struggling to find a publisher for over a year, Barbara decided to pour her artistic talents into another art form altogether, interpretive dance.
0: Again, Barbara would rather run off and throw her focus into a new venture than face the actual problems in her personal life. She joined Mary Stark's dance workshop in Boston in the summer of 1939 and became close with some of the girls in her class. After a few weeks, they decided to move to Oakland, California, to enroll in the Bennington School of the Dance, one of America's early modern dance
1: academies. Nickerson didn't join Barbara on her cross-country venture to the West Coast. It's unclear what he thought about the endeavor, though it seems likely he wasn't pleased.
0: Regardless of what Nickerson thought, it really seemed like Barbara didn't quite care. Based on her journals from this time, she loved living in Oakland and studying dance. Her creative spark had been fostered
1: once again. She was happy for a time, but it didn't last. At the end of the summer of 1939, Barbara received a letter that would tear her world apart and lead to her inevitable disappearance.
0: Up next, we'll explore the downward spiral of Barbara's life caused by a single letter.
1: Now, back to the story.
0: In the summer of 1939, author and former child prodigy Barbara Newhall Follett was living in Oakland, California and studying avant-garde dance when she received a letter from her husband,
1: Nickerson Rogers, from back home in Boston. In the letter, Nickerson told her that he wanted out of their relationship. Some believe that Nickerson had found another woman. It's also possible that he was upset that his wife was living on the other side of the country without him.
0: This news devastated Barbara. As a child, her world had been turned upside down when her father wrote a letter to her mother claiming that he'd found another woman and wanted a divorce.
1: Now, her husband was threatening to do the exact same thing. But Barbara wasn't a child this time and she wasn't going to run away from the issue, as was likely her first instinct. For the first time in her life, Barbara was going to face her problem head-on and try to find a way
0: past it. She traveled back to Boston as quickly as she could and confronted Nickerson. She told him that she could change and that they could make their marriage
1: work. It was a huge step for Barbara personally to confront her husband like this. Based on every other instance in her life in which she'd been met with adversity, it seems more likely that she would have just accepted the divorce and stayed in California. But this time, she fought to make her marriage work. It
0: actually worked, for a while. For the next few months, Nickerson and Barbara's lives seemed to return to normal. They moved into a new apartment together at 48 Kent Street in Brookline, Massachusetts, on November 4, 1939. They went through the motions of coexisting as husband and wife,
1: hoping that something would stick. But their marriage continued to decline. Later that month, Barbara wrote to a friend regarding her marriage. She said,
0: Quote, I don't know what to say now. On the surface, things are terribly, terribly calm and wrong, just as wrong as they can be. I am trying. We are both trying. I still think there is a chance that the outcome will be a happy one. But I would have to think that anyway in order to live. So you can draw any conclusions you like from that.
1: The final line about not being able to live is especially chilling, considering what happened next.
0: Three days later, on December seventh, 1939, the couple got into a horrendous argument. We don't know exactly what they fought
1: about, but we do know the result. After the fight, Barbara marched out of her apartment with her notebook and $30, about $540 in today's currency.
0: It was the last time that Barbara was ever seen or heard from again. Despite her many letters to her friends over the years, she never made contact with any of them from that
1: point on. This, of course, has sparked a flurry of rumors and theories about the disappearance of Barbara Newhall Follett. For this episode, we've selected the three most popular theories to explore in detail.
0: Theory number one, Barbara was murdered by her husband, Nickerson Rogers.
1: Despite the grim nature of this theory, there is actually some substantial evidence to support this claim. The first clue is how Nickerson Rogers reacted to his wife's death. After Barbara's disappearance on December 7, 1939, Nickerson waited two whole weeks for her to return before going to the police. Through simple inaction, Nickerson undermined the investigation before it even began. Even after he informed police, Nickerson waited another four months before he filled out a missing persons report.
0: Barbara's disappearance didn't make much of a splash as a news story when it first happened. Though she'd enjoyed a level of fame as a younger woman, by 1939, she had generally fallen out of the public spotlight.
1: That, combined with Nickerson's blasé attitude about alerting authorities to her disappearance... Is a large part of why this story didn't really gather much attention until decades after it happened.
0: Now, given how Nickerson and Barbara first met and fell in love, it's possible that he just thought his wife had run off on one of her excursions and that she would eventually return. But still, four and a half months is an insane amount of time to wait before raising the alarm.
1: It's common knowledge in police proceedings that if a person is missing for more than 72 hours, chances of finding them alive become almost non-existent. Nickerson's failure to act doomed police to fail.
0: It gets worse. When Nickerson filled out the report, he identified Barbara only as Barbara Rogers. This was her legal married name. But the world at large was still familiar with the name Barbara Follett. If Nickerson had included her birth name on the report, then the investigation may have gotten a lot more attention from the press.
1: It's possible that Nickerson didn't want to taint Barbara's name with a police investigation. Because she was a child prodigy and an accomplished author, Her disappearance would have been a field day for the press. But that would suggest
0: that he valued Barbara's prestige over her own safety. We think most people in that situation would use the fame to find their loved ones.
1: In fact, by not using her maiden name, Nickerson basically ensured that Barbara's disappearance would go unnoticed by the world at large for over a decade. The only reason that Barbara's story became public was because of her mother, Helen Follett. She insisted that the Brookline police look into her daughter's disappearance after she learned about Nickerson's miserable attempt to find her. Given how long this occurred after Barbara vanished, this would seem to imply that Helen didn't find out about the particulars of Nickerson's negligence until years later. In a
0: letter to Rogers, Helen scolded him for his pitiful attempt to find Barbara.
1: Quote, All of this silence on your part looks as if you had something to hide concerning Barbara's disappearance. You cannot believe that I shall sit idle during my last few years and not make whatever effort I can to find out whether Barr is alive or dead. Helen died in 1970,
0: and she went to her grave convinced that Nickerson knew more than he had told
1: the police. We should note that Nickerson didn't have a history of violence. In the hundreds of letters that Barbara wrote during their marriage, she never once indicated that she was afraid of him physically hurting her.
0: But even if he didn't actually kill her, Nickerson's handling of the affair is likely the reason she's never been found. It's certainly the reason there is so little research into this case to go off of today.
1: Could it be possible that Nickerson's inaction was a deliberate attempt to hide a darker truth? Maybe he didn't kill Barbara, but he knew that Barbara had done herself in. Our second theory is that Barbara's disappearance was the result of suicide. The support for this theory comes from a news article by The Boston Globe. In the 1990s, Over 50 years
0: after Barbara vanished, the Globe published a retrospective on her life and disappearance. The piece made specific note of Barbara's arrest in San Francisco
1: in 1929. According to the article, Barbara attempted to commit suicide when she tried to jump out of the window to escape. The theory put forth was that Barbara suffered from depression as a result of her parents' divorce and the stress of traveling with her mother across the world with no real plan, direction, or financial security. By the time she ran away, she was so distraught that she was actually suicidal. It's
0: important to note that Barbara's family thinks that this claim is not valid and the article that suggests this darker version of the story was published over 20 years after Barbara disappeared.
1: While it is common for child prodigies to experience depression as they grow into adults and face the adversities of life, there's not much of an explanation for why Barbara would try to kill herself in 1929 and then not try again for 10 years.
0: Plus, the suicide theory offers no real explanation for where Barbara's body ended
1: up. Suicide is one thing. Killing yourself in such a way that ensures you're never found is very different. That said, the most powerful
0: evidence for this case comes in Barbara's final letter about her relationship with her husband.
1: As we said before, she wrote, quote, I still think there is a chance that the outcome will be a happy one, but I would have to think that anyway in order to live by confessing
0: that she would not be able to live without her husband's love many theorists believe she was admitting to suicidal thoughts
1: now writing that you can't live without someone and actually committing suicide are two completely different things and barbara had a tendency to be very poetic and sometimes dramatic in her language It's possible that this was an overstatement. While the line
0: does reveal that Barbara was feeling depressed at this moment in her life, we don't think it proves that she was ready to commit suicide.
1: This brings us to our final theory. Barbara formed a new alias and lived out the rest of her life away from her husband and the pressures of being a child prodigy.
0: The evidence for this theory can be seen throughout Barbara's life story. When her father revealed his affair to their family, her mother led her on a nine-month-long excursion to get away from everything.
1: When Barbara felt trapped at Pasadena Junior College, she once again ran away. Although she was unsuccessful as a teenage runaway, it's possible that her escape plan worked in her 20s.
0: It was clear that the later years of her life felt stagnant to Barbara and it's very likely that she wanted to return to a life of adventure and
1: wonder. That said, in order to believe this theory, we have to accept the fact that Barbara would be able to run away and never make contact with her family or friends again. It might have been easy to ignore her cheating husband, But to stop writing her family and friends feels very strange for Barbara, as she had been writing letters since she was eight.
0: And the idea that she was somehow escaping the trappings of fame also doesn't necessarily track.
1: As we've said, Barbara's disappearance was hardly the story of the year when it happened. It's taken nearly a century of retroactive looks at her life to even bring this mystery to public attention. At the time she vanished... She really didn't have much in terms of fame to really want to escape from.
0: Although it may appear to be odd, there has been some evidence unearthed in 2019 that suggests Barbara chose to leave her old life behind.
1: According to Daniel Mills of the Los Angeles Review of Books, Barbara's remains have been found in Holderness, New Hampshire. In 1948,
0: a body was found in the wilderness and identified as another missing woman, by the name of Elsie Whittemore. But Daniel proposes this body was
1: actually Barbara's. He believes this because the bones found matched the height of Barbara at the time of her disappearance, around 5'5 to 5'6, not the height of Elsie Whittemore, who was 5'2 to 5'3.
0: The shoes found near the body also match Barbara's shoe size of seven rather
1: than Elsie's size of five. Furthermore, The body was found near a hiking trail where Barbara had visited while traveling in New Hampshire. That said,
0: just because a body matches Barbara's dimensions doesn't mean that the body belongs to Barbara. The aforementioned sizes are common for women and could be
1: another missing person altogether. According to the FBI, over 600,000 people go missing in the U.S. every year. The body that was found could belong to Barbara, but there are a lot of other missing people to choose from. We believe Daniel's theory shows promise, but there are many more variables to consider before we accept it as the truth. As you might have noticed,
0: none of these theories quite answer the disappearance of Barbara Follett. This is largely why the case remains unsolved to this day.
1: After looking through all the facts, We believe that the most likely solution to Barbara's end is the final theory we discussed here today. Barbara was possessed with wanderlust, and she had already tried to form a new life once. It's reasonable
0: to assume that Barbara successfully disappeared. We don't completely buy the theory that her body was found in New Hampshire, but we definitely think it's more likely than not that she managed to get out of Boston, travel to another state or
1: country, and begin a new life. Whether it was the dark work of her husband or by her own doing, the mystery of Barbara continues to enrapture theorists around the globe.
0: Although we may never know all the beautiful stories that Barbara could have shared with the world, the stories that she did share will remain with us forever. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be
1: back in two weeks with another episode. You can find all previous episodes of Gone, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. For more information on Barbara, amongst the many sources we used, we found the website Varksolia by Barbara's half-nephew, Stephen Cook, extremely helpful to our research. We highly encourage you take a look at the website as it even includes samples of Barbara's own handwriting. Gone
0: was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Gone is written by Michael Allen Herman and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.